You're listening to The Thrive Podcast, where every week we dive into a practical, tactical tip to bring you from a life of simply surviving to thriving. It's personal development for the everyday girl who is done with coasting through her days, done with feeling like she's missing out on the deeper meaning of her own life, and done with mediocrity once and for all. Because it's not enough to simply survive, you deserve to thrive. Welcome back to Thrive. In today's episode, I'm having a conversation with two dear, dear friends of mine and Janie's, Paiji Manashe and Christina Mushayamunda. Christina and I met years ago on the internet and became fast friends and email pen pals to the point where we were in each other's weddings in 2016 after having only met in person maybe once before. <laughs> I am so honored to have them here together on Thrive to have an open, honest, real conversation about race, interracial and intercultural relationships, and how white people especially can begin to step up past merely surviving alongside our black brothers and sisters to step into a role of thriving as an ally to better help them thrive too. In case you missed it, we started the conversation on race talking about things like white privilege and the realities of racism in America today with my friend Davida a few episodes back. So go back and add that episode to your list if you haven't tuned in as of yet. Christina and Pai also host a podcast together called the Culture Talk Collective, where they share their open thoughts regularly. So be sure to stay tuned through this episode, drop us your thoughts on social media, and without further ado, welcome Pai and Christina. Thanks, Erica, and congratulations. You are one of the few white people that, one, is brave enough to attempt Pai's full name. I know, I know. <laughs> pronounced it correctly i mean uh erica did you be honest did you practice uh, saying my full first name no you guys know this literally wasn't <laughs> it the first time i met you i went for it and got it yeah. and you were impressed do you remember this you thought i was catfishing your wife on the internet and then you were like oh wait she can say my full name we'll let her pass <laughs> yes i do remember that oh, no, I love it. And that's such an important part of your culture, I feel like. like I, I don't know. I feel like it would be yeah. disrespectful to not know, learn your name, right? Like, you know, it's awesome. I, I always tell people this, that if you can pronounce my full first and last name, then you, you really are my friend. You know, I, <laughs> I, try to, I try to tell people that all the time. Like, if you can't pronounce my full, flat, uh, full and last name and first, then you really don't know me. So thank you so much. It's so, such intentionality that you have. And uh, yeah, we're excited to, to talk a little bit today. Yeah, I'm so excited. So kick us off. Obviously, I know Nina pretty darn well, but tell everyone listening to Thrive all about you, maybe a bit about both of your backgrounds, maybe how you met since you're obviously an intercultural marriage and where you are today. Yeah, so I'm going to go ahead and start and then I'm going to meet Christina in the middle because she shares our story really well. <laughs> but my story uh, begins in the country of Zimbabwe. So I was born and raised in Zimbabwe, uh, beautiful family, um, you know, phenomenal upbringing, um, uh, very diverse upbringing. Uh, I know people think that just because you live in Africa, there's no white people there or you believe it or not. I mean, I had a lot of, you know, a lot of weird conversations I had, you know, when I first moved to the U.S., people thought I lived in a hut. People thought that I rode on elephants. The craziest stories 
but believe it or not, I had a decent middle-class life in Zimbabwe, went to a, a private school, uh, which was pretty diverse. So I got to go to school with kids from Australia, Britain, New Zealand. Um, you know, the church that we grew up in was um, uh, planted by Zimbabweans and Americans. So at a young age, I was exposed to um, obviously English, but also um, diversity in Zimbabwe. Um, so I've always had a desire and a passion to be just a cultural bridge builder. Um, my, I've seen my parents be that. Um, so when my parents decided to move to the United States when I was 10, um, we were excited, obviously. Um, and the, the, the second thing is we thought we we're going for vacation. Um, <laughs> and uh, 17 years later, we're on this permanent vacation in the U.S. Um, but, you know, you know, the saying that, you know, man makes a plan and God laughs. I mean, that's what happened. I, we, we planned to go back, but we ended up being here. And it's been a great story. We moved to North Carolina. So Winston-Salem, if you know Winston-Salem, we lived there. Uh, lived there. And then um, the summer of my junior year, we moved to East Tennessee. So I tell people that it was a big culture shock moving from the U.S. to America, right? You know, we grew up watching Coming to America, all these, all these funny movies. And we thought the entire United States was like Los Angeles or New York. And then we end up in North Carolina and Tobaccoville, tobacco country. And we're like, what is going on over here? We're the skyscrapers. So that was a big culture shock, obviously. And even growing up speaking British English, because Zimbabwe is a former British colony. So, you know, obviously we have different words, terminologies for things. Like instead of saying, you know, I remember in fifth grade asking to go use a restroom, but I said, can I please go to the toilet? And everybody thought that was the funniest thing. And then, you know, or saying bathroom, I was like, bathroom, that's where people take baths. People. <laughs> so, I mean, the funniest thing, but obviously that was a big culture shock. And the next culture shock was moving to East Tennessee because that's a whole different ball game. So I always feel like I'm God's social experiment because like I've been bounced around in different cultural settings. So I've been in majority settings and then I've also been in minority settings, but I'm really glad that God's bounced me around because if he didn't, I would not be here with my beautiful wife. <laughs> um, so I grew up, I was born in Indiana, but I moved around a lot because my dad was in the military. And then we ended up settling in East Tennessee as well. And I grew up in a primarily white area there. When I went to public high school, there were two black guys at my high school that I remember. Then I ended up transferring to a private school halfway through high school. And there was one guy who was biracial black. He graduated the year I transferred in. Mm -hmm. And so then I graduate, like there was nobody else at that school who was black. Um, and so it was a very like mono culture, mono, mono race. Is that a, is that even a term? You or made it a term. That's really, I, good. I like that. Term, mono <laughs> term. I mean, it was primarily just white people. Um, and so I actually remember texting my best friend in high school. I told him, I said, I really just want to one day, like, I can't wait to move out of here and be like in a more diverse area. And I, I was just naturally more attracted to darker skinned people. And so I didn't date anybody until I started dating Pi though. Um, but I just was, 
I loved learning about other cultures and I just loved being able to not be the only white person in the room. And so I moved to go to college. And when I was in college, I knew that there was this guy who had a really nice smile and a really long name. <laughs> and that was the majority of what I knew. That's what most people know about me. <laughs> yeah, the long name. We got Pai Di Wanashe Mushayamuna in the house. I know. <laughs> cute butt. Oh my but, goodness. <laughs> <laughs> um, I didn't notice that in college though, because I wasn't paying attention. But anyway, mm -hmm. I started going to his church towards my junior year, end of my junior year of college. And in the spring of that year, they had an anti-Valentine's Day party. The college ministry did. It was on February 15th. It was this party that was celebrating the friend zone. We didn't do um, love. It was just like war movie. I think they played Lord of the Rings, which isn't really a war movie. It's a dance. <laughs> like spaghetti. Um, and they had like spaghetti, garlic, garlicky foods. And I see Pi walk in in a beret. I'm so embarrassed about this story. I am just like, why was I wearing that? I don't know, but I was like, that is such a bull. He was like wearing a beret and an old man sweater. And that's hilarious. I was like, that's a really bold choice. <laughs> and he's rocking it. And so then I like went to give him this, the world's most awkward Christian side hug. I don't know why I thought that I needed to say hi and hug him. I had never touched him in my life before. I had spent the entire winter just admiring him from afar because he was so wise and godly. And I was just like, wow, he is so like, every word that comes out of his mouth is just amazing. And <laughs> in November of the, the year before, I told my um, pet best friend in college, I said, I am not anywhere in a place to date anybody, but if I did, I would want to date and marry Pi from Sunday school. And she was well, like, that turned out well. And she was like, ask him out for coffee. And I was like, no, no, I would want way more than coffee. So I'm not going to do that. I knew I couldn't ask him out just as a friend because I would definitely want to be more than friends. So anyway, I guess that's what led me to do the, the awkward Christian side hug. I don't, I don't even know. I guess we've been flirting on Twitter. Like we had been liking each other's tweets. I, I was training for a half marathon and I would come up with the most creative tweets while I was on my long runs. And I remember on one of my runs, I was like, Ooh, I'm going to tweet this. And I bet Pi will like it. Cause it's really funny. And <laughs> I had we no have, idea you were crafting tweets. We have now moved to where he doesn't like my tweets anymore. He sends me ones that are problematic and tells me I need to stop being so sassy on the internet. <laughs> yep. <laughs> That's a true story. <laughs> um, so anyways, at the anti-Valentine's Day party, we didn't really even talk to each other that much, but I gave him the awkward side hug. Following weekend, he messages me on Facebook and asks for my number, and we hang out that night. I played the damsel in distress. He was like, what are you doing tonight? And I was like, oh, I'm all alone in my dorm. I have, I'm just eating Flaming Hot Cheetos and watching Pike <laughs> Academy all by myself <laughs> and so then he invites me to a mutual friend's bonfire and um the following weekend he asked me out on a date and here we are six years six and a half years later 
Yep. And we're getting ready to have a baby in a month. We are, I mean, that, that beret really, really worked for you there, buddy. That's, I think that's the only time I wore that. I know. I was going to say, time. I need to see the beret now. I've never, <laughs> I could never picture pie in a beret. We got rid of it because when we were moving out of your, do you still have it? I hope not. I mean, I hope so. My mentor gave that to me. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. We, Did you throw it I away, Christina? That, no, but when we were moving you out of your parents' house, I remember seeing it. Yeah. But yeah, so that's a long, long story long how we met and yeah. where we're at today. I love um, it. Yeah, we, we, we really enjoy life. And one of the things I love about Christina and our relationship is that we're open uh, to learning. You know, our relationship is intercultural and also interracial, right? Um, you know, I come from an African background, which I, I, I hold a lot of our values and cultural beliefs. And but also I, I'm also a minority in America. I am in, in sociology. There's a saying called third culture kid. I'm a third culture kid. So I do have an aspect of American American aspect that I do hold as well. But, you know, we've had a lot of conversations about what's currently going on, not even this year but even when we started dating i mean the small town that we live in i remember we went on a run together and i remember thinking in my head oh my goodness i'm going on a run with a white girl i hope that we don't get looks out of hope that we don't get anybody to stop because i've had those experiences happen to me alone and i think christina talking about it we talked about it like months or even years later about it and you mm-hmm. even felt like the tension of just yeah. going on a jog together in a small town in tennessee yeah, but I actually wrote about that that day because I felt the tension that day, but I didn't want to address it yet. Yeah. And it's not like we had anybody roll their window down and yell at us mm-hmm. and do anything. But like, I remember I reached to hold his hand on because we walked, we ran down and then we walked back to where we were going. And I reached to hold his hand and I just felt stares almost as people were driving by. It was so uncomfortable. Yeah. Holding my hand? No, like the, <laughs> I'm kidding. Holding your hand, yeah, it was very sweaty. No, and, but it and, was. Sorry, go ahead. Oh no, I was gonna say like, just I felt very aware of the fact that I that I was white and you were black, and mm-hmm. I think that was one of the first moments that I realized. I mean, I've always known that I was white, but it was the first moment that I was so aware of my whiteness. Yeah, and I think for me, I already knew that was gonna happen, but it was. How do I share this with her without scaring her? Mm-hmm. And and the beauty, I mean, obviously, the beauty of love is that you're naive. Um, but if love is gonna last long to have longevity, we have to we have to speak truth and 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 make choices to say, look, this is what it's like, but we're gonna push through. And um, that's what I'm thankful for, um, Erica. Honestly. Um, and I'm sorry for going off on a tangent, but because oh, the, the relationship, so the small college we went to, um, you know, it's a tiny Christian liberal arts school. So, you know, we're, we're millennials, right? So everybody is pretty progressive in their thinking about interracial, intercultural relationships. It's cool, right? Everybody loves it. Um, so you live in this bubble at, at this college for four years and you're able to date, you're able to do whatever and everybody thinks it's okay. But the, the sad thing about bubbles is that they get popped. Mm-hmm. So once you graduate, you move into the real world. And for me, I dated someone um, my, I think it was my freshman and sophomore year. 
of college and she was a white girl and her family was from Kentucky. So, I mean, everything went, I know Erica just gave me the big <laughs> eyes and yes, yes. Um, and everything, you know, was great. Yeah. She's cool. So then she tells her family that she likes a boy and he happens to be black. Her family at first are like, cool. Second time they're like, not cool. So they've never met me before, but the big reason is that her grandparents and, you know, are just uncomfortable. You know, they, they talk about, you don't know where he comes from. I mean, all these different things. So she is stubborn and I'm naive. So we continue to date, even though I probably, when I look back, you know, I was a 19, 20, I probably shouldn't have done that. So we date and then we end up, I end up visiting her family for the first time during spring break. And that's like a bubble burst moment. That's when, you know, going to Kentucky with your white girlfriend, knowing that this family is not going to welcome you with loving arms. I can't believe you did that. Like, yeah, me too. I would not have been brave enough to do that. I'd have been like, peace. <laughs> yeah. Especially because did you, I mean, no pressure because Christina's sitting right next to you. But if you didn't have like futuristic vision here with this girl, yeah. that's an even more of a bold move too, to put yourself in that sort of position. Yeah. And I think, you know, my front lobe wasn't developed yet. So I have to <laughs> uh, um, give that. I don't know what, when I look back at it, that was pretty bold. And maybe I just thought, hey, like, this is maybe I need to prove them wrong. And I think that was my mentality when I was younger. You know, because I have, you know, going back, you know, moving to Winston-Salem, I grew up in a predominantly uh, black um, community went to predominantly black school and then moving to Tennessee, it was reversed. I was like now a minority. So like I became in a way, and it's sad to say, but in a way I became this, this um, exclusionary to the terrible stereotypes, you know, and I hated that because I was like, that's not right. That's racism in a way, you know, that's, that's what you're saying is that, Oh, everybody, you're different than everybody, but also became this token person. So for me, going to Kentucky was like to prove to this family that not all black people are like the ones that you see on TV. Mm -hmm. I remember her even defending to her dad that I wear a belt. I mean, how sad, how sad is that, right? So fast forward, I get there, um, open the door and her entire family is there, like her grandparents, her aunts, her uncles. And I'm like, like oh no that moment i literally wanted to die <laughs> like i've never i think that's probably one of the most nerve nerve-wracking moments of my entire life and when i was sweating everything so you know a lot of them give me hugs and um but i go to the grandma and the grandma i go in for a hug which was bold and i had a hoodie on that had a i played for you know it was a soccer hoodie you had some the club i used to play for some when I went in for the hug, the grandma slowly uh, stuck her hand out and stopped me from hugging her and pointed at my at my hoodie and the wording on my hoodie. It said something, something soccer association. She said, soccer? We don't play soccer around here. And I was like, oh, that's code word. Okay, I see how it is. Um, so I didn't obviously hug her, but I don't know how long we dated, but we dated for, I don't know, a year or something like that. And 
we had maybe two or three other visits and you know the awesome thing is her her dad was asked for forgiveness and he said hey i was wrong um what i did was terrible um he wrote like wrote this letter about you know in the bible god talks about god not looking at the physical appearance and how he looks at the heart and um even her sister before we even met was messaging me and saying you're tearing my family apart i know racism is wrong but what you're doing because my girlfriend at the time was like crying and defending me i mean it was terrible so you know right before we broke up i mean they loved they ended up loving me uh, because i'm a pretty likable guy right <laughs> and super uh, humble i'm being silly guys being <laughs> but, but he really is mr congeniality he so. is We'll vouch for you, Pi. Thank you. But <laughs> it was hard. It was the toughest. Like, I grew up really quickly um, as a 19-year-old. Um, obviously, you know, we broke up, um, thank God, <laughs> because I, I'm, I'm here with my wife. But that taught me something about race in America. It taught me that uh, not everybody truly values people um, regardless of their color or, or their backgrounds. In that moment, I remember sleeping at night in that house, at their house, feeling like the smallest person alive, not feeling valued for, you know, just because of the color of my skin. I felt like I was in the, in the 30s. Mm-hmm. And I remember, I'm, I don't know why they told me this, but they're like, oh, yeah, uh, right, right across the river because this is the board of Ohio. That's where the KKK meets. And I'm like, why are they telling me these things? You know, seems like an odd thing to mention. Yeah, to and your... then, and then, now, and I can keep going. Last story, and this this one hurts a lot, but I think it's important that just because you say you're Christian doesn't mean you don't have any type of prejudice or racing you. But I remember her telling me about the her church, her home church in Kentucky, and how the deacons and they had a elder meeting, and one of the elders said the N word during the meeting. And, uh, and her, her dad stood up, was like, Hey, you don't, you don't say that. Like, you know, my daughter's uh, boyfriend is black man. Now this is inappropriate. So this is a snippet of like what actually goes on behind the scenes of a lot of structures that we don't know. So that, that became, that was, that's always been part of my life, but it hasn't always been part of Christina's life. So that was the tough part trying to navigate how to express all these things before I dated Christina and Mm -hmm. I met her dad actually before we even dated. And I told him, I said, look, I've had a really tough time dating interracially. And I remember even talking to God, I was like, God, I'm done with this. I'm not, I'm not (laughs) white girls. I can't do this. No, seriously. I had this pact. Like I'm not dating. I was like, I'm done. I'm just going to (laughs) marry, marry a woman that looked like me and not have issues. Uh, But God is funny. Right. Uh, We had different plans and I met her dad and dad was like, look, um, our family is not like that in any way. Our family is going to love you for who you are. We're going to accept you. And I was, that was like, okay, confirmation. This is weird, but I think I'm doing this again. <laughs> and then obviously uh, we're here. So then on top of Christina's dad, obviously embracing you with open arms, what sorts of reactions did family or friends give you when you first entered into relationship with each other? I was really nervous when we started dating to meet his parents because I had in my head this vision of, you know, Zimbabwean culture was more conservative. And I remember going to meet his parents 
I was wearing like a halter top dress and I went up to my friend who grew up with pie in Zimbabwe and he was, he's white. And I said, Hey, is what I'm wearing appropriate to meet pie's parents? And he said, no. And he was lying. I think he was just kidding. <laughs> like, he's, like, I, I flipped out. I like went in a whole like whirlwind and I, I called my mom driving over to meet Ty's parents are like <laughs> throwing a fit because I couldn't find a jacket to wear over this dress. And Pi wasn't answering his phone. I didn't like I was it was a very stressful time. <laughs> I met them and they were so nice. And I remember asking, even in the first conversation, how do I address you properly? Um, I mean, you're not going to go up and say like Steve and Betty, um, to a Zimbabwean parents, you, you would say Mr. Mrs. Or, um, if you wanted to use like the correct cultural term, I would say, um, mother of pie, which in Shona means it, you say my pie. And I would say father of pie. And that's Baba pie. Yeah. I call, I call pie's parents. <laughs> I got five parents, and you're not my my in-laws, so that's well, no, but that's I love that. Um, but yeah, so I remember totally freaking out about meeting his family. But then I met them, and I I really prayed intentionally about my mother-in-law. I prayed for a woman that I would love as much as my own mom, and someone who would just be a second mom to me. And that is absolutely what Pai's mom has become to me. And she has been so helpful coming in as an intercultural relationship because she actually is Zambian and Pai's dad is Zimbabwean. So she, when she came to Pai's dad's village to meet the people back in the village, because they met in the city, um, not only was she Zambian, but she was also a city girl. So there were a lot of cultural nuances that she wasn't aware of and didn't do. And so her mother-in-law, would be in the background whispering to her, okay, now um, she would like slip her a $20 bill or something. And she'd be like, okay, now when you meet this person curtsy and put the $20 bill in their hand, like shake their hand with the $20 bill in the hand. And like her mother-in-law also, the day after their wedding, the bride has to get up and gather firewood and cook an entire meal for the family. And my pie had not gathered firewood very often in her life. So her mom-in-law, paid girls in the village to go bundle firewood and put it out like right in the woods so that all she had to do was go pick up the bundle and can't come inside that's amazing i get like emotional telling that story because in a sense she's done that for me in a lot of ways yeah. i don't have to go buy firewood but i know <laughs> that if i went to like whenever we do go to zimbabwe i refuse to go without her there because i know she'll help me so that's that's all about pie side coming into my family um i think for the most part everybody was pretty loving and pretty open my little brothers were obsessed with him like <laughs> i would be like hey guys he's here to see me and they were young at the time <laughs> they were like eight and five right yeah oh my gosh they were babies and they were like no we're gonna put like my little brother he had to get soccer cleats when pie came to visit because Pi played soccer and so we got him some cleats and a soccer ball and we went down to the soccer fields to play soccer do you remember doing that oh yeah it was the weekends were hang out with the uh with with your brothers not yeah. hang out with my girlfriend yeah and he would have to go take naps all the time <laughs> and I'd be like why are you napping you spent all day with my siblings and you've not spent any time with me um yeah. 
but it they were everybody really loved him i i did have one grandparent who was worried about it now they're like they they're each other's favorite person in the family i think um i think unfortunately um a lot of um the older demographic um that we we, i mean honestly we, we love so dearly are are just misinformed by the narrative of the media that you know or even personal experiences i think at times we we make our personal experience our our theology it's like this is if i went through this and that means everybody else is like this so you have these two opposing forces you have what is enforced in the media and then what's also maybe a bad experience that you wouldn't if a if a white person robbed you you know at normal i don't say normal but usually you're not going to think oh all white people are bad but sometimes you know because bad people no matter what race are i mean are, are alive are there so i so i think that's really the biggest um hindrance at times is not like because i don't do this anymore i don't have to prove myself to people like i was when i was 19 but it's to say look like we're not all people are like that it's just people make their mm-hmm. own choices and I think that's why I think with, with your grandpa, it's been awesome because he's gotten to know me. And then also he loves my family. He's always asking my family. Oh my yeah. He wants them to move into their town, basically. Yeah. <laughs> so, and the hope is, is that if I have those kind of stereotypes, I, I, I really hope that someone were to come to my life and, and to, and to break those stereotypes. Like, I hope that not that we do on purpose, but because we're open to listen and understand, mm-hmm. we begin to become more inclusive in our lives and more loving. Well, I mean, I also think that anybody who knows the two of you and knows your family, it's very evident very quickly, the amount of love and the beauty and the cultures that you both bring to the table. I mean, Mama Pie and or no, my pie and bubble pie are like two of the nicest, most welcoming people. I remember when we came to your house and they're like, eat this. And I think it was, was it Sudza? Am I saying that? Oh, oh my yeah. goodness. Erica. And it was so good. Like, oh my, and they, and my pie entertained all of Jamie's questions about all of the food. Like they were, there was just so much love and warmth and beauty. And it's like, it's, it kind of leads into a question that I wanted to ask you too which what is saying or i guess why is saying i don't see color or saying god is colorblind or any sort of iteration of that why is that unhelpful to the progression of everything in this country and is that something that's offensive to you when people say oh i don't see colors oh i'm not racist <laughs> you give me a look christina because <laughs> i i, I want to know if, here's the thing Pi gives the gracious responses. I tell it like I'm it like, is. I'm like, calm down. He calm. seasons his words with salt. I season mine with cayenne pepper. So I was, I was looking to to say, do you want to answer this or do you want me how, to? How about, how about I start? Get two different. <laughs> gonna get the same message, but two different deliveries. Yeah, <laughs> that's funny. You know, no one, no one looks at a rainbow and says, oh, I don't see color, <laughs> right? Say yeah, that no, again. <laughs> yeah, no one looks at rainbow and says, oh, I wish that rainbow was only red or green. What um, a beautiful white rainbow. Exactly. <laughs> it's, it's, it's funny when we, that's a funny example, but that's how we think sometimes. Yeah. You know, um, I love going to the ice cream shop because I love the different flavors that they have. <laughs> you know, I love being able to chocolate, vanilla. So I think 
when we think about that that statement, like I don't see color, and if you are a person of faith, I think what you're saying is you're limiting God to a box and to your own view. Mm. Um, you know, God is bigger than what we perceive to be, and I think the the beauty of culture, of color, of different ways to see God only emphasize his grandness, right? And I think that the smaller your God becomes, um, the smaller your mind is, honestly. Um, so I think that's that's a big thing. And when someone tells me they don't see color, what they're saying to me is I don't see you because color is part of me. I can't take my black skin off. I can't switch and become white. I can't do that. That's part of who I am. Um, but the big part of color is not just the aestheticness of it. It's also ingrained as culture ingrained. There's history, there's story. And I think that's the important part that we have to understand that color is not just what you see. Color is what we experience. It's someone's journey. And when you say that, what you're saying is your journey, your story, your history isn't important. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, especially as a minority living in a majority culture, like what we just want is just to be seen, right? We talk about being heard and being seen. And, and Christy and I use that language in our marriage because like I can hear her, I can listen to respond at times, but I'm not truly listening to understand. And I think at the end of the day, as all peoples, how do we see each other truly? Like even uh, within your whiteness, like my my desire is to see you in your culture. I know you guys have a beautiful um, history um, in your family as well. You guys aren't just like, you know, America is not just, oh yeah, we're just American. Like you guys come from somewhere as well, right? You guys, um, you guys are Italian, right? So you guys have a, was it Polish? Polish. Wait, yeah. is Jamie Italian? Jamie's not Italian. Jamie's What's Polish. Jamie? Mm-hmm. Oh my, oh my God. I'm half Polish. I'm, on, I'm only a quarter Italian. Do, so okay, if, so she but, so you do are a quarter Italian. Okay, I thought you maybe we yeah. talked about it before, and I just remember Italian. But that's the beauty of like this country; it's a melting pot. So my my hope is is that eventually one day we stop using that term, and 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 start saying, "Hey, I do see color, and it's beautiful. It's part of God's design. It's part of culture." Mm-hmm. Christina. Yeah, I think. You, you really hit the nail on the head. I actually learned a little bit about the history of why people say I don't see color. I think I read about it in White Fragility by Robin D'Angelo. And it originated, to the best of my memory, in the 60s when there was a lot of civil unrest with the civil rights movement. They found the best way to say, like, to move from racism, quote unquote, is to is to no longer see color because you did have those it was segregated there was the colored section and then the white section then they corrected onto the other side to say i don't see color because now everything has come back together as history progresses you know we we learn and one of my favorite quotes from is from dr maya angelou um do the best you can and then when you know better you will do better and I think people were just doing the best they could with what they had. We, we have learned now that that is not an appropriate way to say that because you essentially are whitewashing everything. And it is really important to see, like Pai said, color and heritage and history. So would you say then the goal moving forward 
would be for both sides to be able to see people for who they are, as they are honoring the color of their skin, the history and culture that comes behind it so that it's unified, but it's not unified because we are the same, because obviously we're not. It's unified because we are seeing the differences, respecting Mm -hmm. them, honoring them, admiring them, learning from them, growing together because of that. I think our um, Black Indigenous people of color, brothers and sisters, they see like white has been the majority culture for a long time. And so I'm not going into any room expecting a black person or a per- indigenous person or a person of color to see me and see my history and see my heritage right now, because I have been the voice, like my culture has been the voice for so, so many years. Yeah. Um, so for me as a white person, it's actually really important that I walk into a room, into a space, into a learning environment where I am paying more attention to my black brothers and sisters and my other sisters and brothers who are of color. Yeah. One, like it, it requires a lot of humility. It requires a lot of saying the wrong thing sometimes, um, asking the wrong question, not on purpose, just but just out of like ignorance. So it requires a lot of uncomfortability. It requires a lot of humility, a lot of saying, I'm sorry. Um, I think it needs to be done in relationship. But yeah. I yeah. think, you know, I think that's the, that's the biggest thing is to have the comfortability to ask the hard questions and questions that are ignorant. You need to have a relationship with someone that doesn't look like you, mm-hmm. not for the sake of answering those questions, but for the sake of knowing them mm-hmm. because they are a person. Right. And I think and I think that one of the hard parts right now of what we're going through is that we have good intentioned white people that have a lot of questions, but they're asking to get the answers, not asking to know me. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've gone through this this filtering of my my DMs and my messages like, hey, like, because we went, Christine and I went through, you know, the, uh, during the peak of the, pro, of the protests and a lot going on, we're getting so many um, questions and invitations to speak at churches and things like that. And we had to say no to a lot of them. And one of the best advice advices I've been given was by a white pastor, actually, when I told him about it, uh, my old church. And he's like, and I was like, hey, like, I really don't feel like it's my job to be this, like, spokesperson because I don't have a relationship with these people. This guy texted me from, you know, I haven't talked to him in years. And he's like, one of the best things you can do for him is say, hey, um, you know, I'm not going to, um, you know, I'm sorry, but I'm going to decline. However, here are some resources that you can learn. Please reach reach back out to me and we can talk about those resources that you've read and listened to. That's, that was like phenomenal. That helped me a lot because now when I'm like, hey, I don't think there's a relationship here. I just I refer people to resources and I say, hey, when you're ready to talk about this resource, then we can talk because then it shows me that you're doing the legwork. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times it's been uh, minority people doing all the work for white people right mm-hmm. so i have to come in with my presentation to tell you how racism is real and i'm like you know we don't have to like tell people that i mean everybody knows Use that eyeballs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so i think what just bouncing off what you said christina it's it's just relationship and relationship is slow and relationship is not quick and we live in a very quick fast-paced culture and relationship has a lot of mistakes and unfortunately, we also live in a culture that can be very un- unforgiving. Um, so at times, if you ask the wrong question, you might feel like you have 
a scarlet letter. Like you are a terrible person. And this is my personal opinion, but if I'm in a relationship with someone and I know that they mean well, they might say idiotic things. I'll tell them that was dumb Mm -hmm. in the safety of just me and them because I want to protect their integrity. But at the same time, I'm not going to expose them and say, look, this is what they said. So I think it's, it's the challenge that we have in this time is how do we create spaces that are safe um, for us um, twofold to ask the right questions, but also the second fold is to listen well, Um, because at times as a minority, you don't really feel seen. So, um, so sometimes you just get exhausted or sometimes you might just be angry and frustrated. I mean, imagine the, the toll that you have of just feeling like you have to prove to people. So then when someone tries to ask questions, you might be exhausted already and you just don't feel Mm -hmm. like it. And then when you say no, then it's like, Oh, angry black man. It's like, no, I just don't want to talk, you know? So like I've even sharing with Christina about sometimes like the way I act in public, she, you know, we'd fight sometimes because she thought, Oh, pa, you're being, you know, you're being fake. I'm like, no, I'm not being fake. Like, I, don't, I just don't have the opportunity. If I, if we fight in public, people think I'm this terrible black person. So I can't like yell and, you know, and look visibly frustrated or I can't have resting B face. I have to smile and act like everything's going okay, you know? And that's why I think it's so important to be able to be seen and to be able to, to be heard uh, because that's just the reality that I live in. Absolutely. Can you explain what white allyship is and what this means and really looks like for listeners who want to become better allies for the Black community? I love me some infographics. (laughs) And (laughs) um, it's from one of my favorite happy Instagram posters, um, at OhHappyDanny. Oh, she's great. It's so great. So she actually has a roadmap to providing relief, allyship during a crisis. So I'm kind of just going to use this as a jumping off point. Um, So she says, you know, you want to start by picking a cause to focus on. Compassion fatigue is so real. If you are paying attention to all of the things that are happening in the world and trying to be an ally for all of these things, you are going to be paralyzed because you're just not going to be able to do it all. And so for me, like there are things that sometimes I'll, I'll be like, that's really sad. I can't focus on that right now. For me, I'm focusing on this. And that helps because then I know it gives me, a, a, it gives me like a, an area to hone in on. So then you want to, um, her next step is to unpack the issue and study it. So I think for people who are just now like, oh my gosh, I didn't realize racism still existed in 2020. This is the opportune moment to be quiet and listen to voices that are already speaking out on this. Um, People that I really respect, uh, there's Dr. Christina Cleveland. She is a theologist and she um, talks a lot about racism within the church and how to address that. Uh, Latasha Morrison from Be The Bridge, she actually has a podcast um, called Be The Bridge Builder. And- um, I mean, she has an entire community. And an entire community. Yeah, she just started her podcast in March though, which is awesome. That's awesome, yeah. Um, but she has an entire community. And I think I told you about that, Erica, because mm-hmm. you were like, I don't know where to start. And I'm like, hey, start with Be The Bridge because- I love it. Um, 
on the Facebook group, you actually, you take three months of silence and you just observe. And then you also go through these units and they have been so, I, I joined the group last year, but I didn't get to do the units until this year because I had just started my teaching job right when I joined the group. So I've just taken longer than three months of silence because I want to try to finish the units before I start participating in the group. They have a lot of units that impacts a lot of I think like a lot of terms that might be trigger words like whiteness or white privilege or white fragility. Um, racism is even a trigger word because people hear racism and they automatically get images of the KKK and that that is a part of it. But we also have a systemic structure of racism that this country was built upon. And this country is built upon a, a system of elevating really the white man. Like if I've been totally nerding out over Hamilton. Oh, so the good. Past, like three years, but uh, especially now that it's on Disney plus, all these articles are resurfacing and people are writing new articles about Hamilton and someone pointed out and she said, Hey, this, you know, the musical is great, but we're forgetting that the founding fathers did not build this country for people of color or for women. It was, was built for white men. And so now we're in 2020, we're trying to figure out how do we restructure our government system, our prison system, um, our economic system to benefit not just the white man, but also our brothers and sisters who were here before we even moved here and also who were brought over here. Some, some people were not brought over by their choice. And then some people immigrated here by their own choice. Just trying to make America look like a, the melting pot that it is in the, in the government structures. So take time to unpack and study the issue. Then also you want to assess local needs and partner with community organizations. And I love this roadmap to providing relief because it, these are such practical steps that um, Danielle is providing for us. So for me, like if I look at the bigger issue, what's affecting the United States, again, that feels very paralyzing. So I look and said, what can I do in my community? So one thing that I did was they had a panel with our mayor, vice mayor, superintendent, and our city school superintendent, and then um, our chief of police. And one of the youth services coordinators set up this panel so that his kids could ask questions of our leaders in our community. And I had a student who is part of that youth service. And so she reached out to me asking for some, some articles. And I was really proud of her because she said, I've, I've been researching, but I don't know where to like get some good, good yeah. feedback. And so I sent her some things that I had been studying as well. And I just sat in the back with my teacher heart eyes. And I just was so proud of her as she asked questions. And so I, I was able to attend several community events that provided a lot of a space of questions and answers. And I'm, I'm going to brag on you for a minute. So, you know, Christina's an English teacher. And I think part of being an ally per se is making sure that the world that you live in is already, it's the things that you're reading, the things that you're watching, the entertainment and listening to it's diverse. You know, it's not this secluded one-time thing. Oh, oh, we're going through race in 2020. Let's just do that. And then 2021 move on a different thing. It's part of our, it's part of our lifestyle. And when Christina started teaching, she included amazing texts, you know, uh, from writers, uh, people that are uh, writers of color 
um, nonfiction books. I mean, The Hate You Give is one of the books. I'm sure you've heard The Hate You Give and the movie. So she introduced those books to her predominantly white students. And there were a lot of, you know, I mean, there were some um, minority students, some biracial kids, but a lot of those kids have felt seen and heard and they actually have reached out to Christine and saying, thank you so much. Like Mrs. Mushan Munda, we actually feel like you see us because when we talk about English class, we talk about, you know, people that look like us and think like us. So, and obviously she's had some, you know, pretty interesting conversations in those classes about like, think that Jesus is white conversations with some of your ninth graders, you know, they thought that he was white and you're like, no, he wasn't white. He looked Middle Eastern. Uh, but the point is just to brag on you is that when you came into teaching, that was your mission already. It was already part of who you are. It wasn't something like, oh my gosh, this is happening. I need to start like researching black authors. And that's not a bad thing per se. Mm-hmm. But what I'm saying is because obviously of our relationship and your interest to diversity, you had that included already. And that's that gave you an advantage to where that student of yours was able to ask you for resources before she spoke in front of the the city. What do you guys think racial reconciliation looks like and what it requires of us all to actually get to that place? Empathy. Mm, That's good. Listening to understand, not listening to respond. Yeah. Um, choosing not to be defensive. And I think those are, honestly, I think those are the three core things that you need to have. Like you can't, like racial reconciliation can't be performative. You can't have performative allyship where you're like, ah, I donated to the Black Lives Matter movement. I have (laughs) reconciled the races. (laughs) No, like, I don't know why I picked that voice. Sound like Hamilton (laughs) over here. That was a really good voice. (laughs) Sometimes I just slip into those. Um, but, I, you know, I think you, you have to have, and Pi, you can add to my trio if, if you have another thing, but I think, you know, your core values need to be centered around empathy, listening to understand, and not being defensive. Because then when you carry those three things into a relationship, that's where you start building reconciliation. You can't build reconciliation just on a stage. It has to be done side by side, hand in hand. Mm -hmm. And that sounds really like hunky dory and it sounds really loving. I think of, you know, the image of the protesters marching across the bridge in, in Selma, like they're all holding hands and marching, but like, that was scary. And they didn't just come together and be like, let's hold hands and march. Like they had had relationships with with each other and with people. And they knew that policies that were in the United States were wrong and that those needed to change. And so they had to be, the white people had to listen to understand what their black brothers and sisters were saying. They had to listen to understand with Dr. Martin Luther King. As a white woman, I'm never going to be able to truly, truly understand what it feels like to experience direct racism. Anywhere I go, I'm not really going to experience that because a white person from America, they're seen as someone who's at the top. So I can never experience that directly. What I what I can experience is listening to understand mm-hmm. Pi's experiences and talking about being hand in hand. I was holding his hand in a and another small town right down the road from us. And a man called him the N-word. Now, Pi didn't hear, but I did. And I was furious. Yeah. And, and, and that anger, I felt like it was, it was a righteous anger because he was dehumanizing you. 
Yeah. And, and saying that, I think when you have that lens of this is a human person, a human being, and you can empathize with their experiences, that's going to lead you towards racial reconciliation. Yeah. And, you know, empathy is, is a really important word. And I think we also need to disseminate what empathy is. Uh, because a lot of times we are sympathetic instead of being empathetic. So at times, so sympathy says, I feel bad for you. Ooh, I'm so sorry. But empathy tells me I feel bad with you. You know, um, sympathy is, I'm sorry you lost a loved one. Empathy says, I lost a loved one. And I think it's so important for us to understand those two. And when it comes to racial reconciliation, empathy is also tied with a a holy anger and a desire for justice. Because you know that if a loved one, and if any of our loved ones got hurt, even though we don't feel the, maybe a physical, even though I will never feel that pain physically, I can feel it in my heart, Mm -hmm. right? Um, I have this 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 desire to see them um, healed and whole again, and I think that's a kind of desire that we need as people. You know, we are people of faith. The Bible talks about a body of Christ, and if one part isn't working, another part notices. It. You know, if a hand is not working, then and then the brain notices it. I mean, if if my right leg stopped working, it pains my entire body. Tells me that. You know, my brain receptors, everything goes down. What if, just what if, is as people, we can actually feel that towards other, other cultures and races? You know, we're not, we might not be able to directly understand and feel the pain, but because we're so connected, we feel it in our hearts because we feel like we're separated. And I think that's the type of humility that we need, um, but it's scary, right? And I think a lot of times what we see is people acting there they're displaying anger and and rage but internally it's fear because that fear is is a loss of of self it's wow like maybe i don't have it all together maybe i'm wrong and i think we need to acknowledge that like look hey none of us have got it pat down and it's okay mm-hmm. um but the anger the, the the holy anger and the passionate desire for justice is so important because mm-hmm. just like you see in nature a mama bird or mama or anything any mother of nature any animal you see the type of defensiveness and the type of anger or passion it has towards protecting his child mm-hmm. like what if we had that towards protecting other people mm-hmm. um you know you guys are parents of a young one i know you guys want her to grow in a house that's where she can feel seen and heard and you will do whatever it took to ensure that um, she's protected, uh, that she's nourished. But you would never try to say, hey, your experiences don't matter because I know you guys are incredible people. Um, so what if we did that? I think that's really the path. And the path is hard because it means crushing a lot of our own our own ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's hard because we've all, and, and a lot of times it's the ideas our parents might have told us. And that's even harder, mm-hmm. you know, or even our friends to say, maybe they were wrong. And that's okay. Absolutely. I know you had mentioned this earlier too, just in terms of how tired you felt, especially when this was all kind of coming to a head yeah. a, a couple of weeks ago. How can we actively support our brothers and sisters who are hurting in the moment where we can, besides 
you know, these things like empathy and listening to understand for the future and for always, if someone is in the moment really just hurting from the weight of all of this, what is, what's just like an active show of support in that moment that would not be maybe overwhelming or adding to the feeling of burden of it all, but be truly helpful for someone hurting? Food. (laughs) (laughs) I say that kind of kidding, but also kind of serious. Like think about, you know, when someone dies and someone, there's a funeral, what do people do? They bring them food, they gather around them, they support them, they check in on them. Mm-hmm. Um, we actually had a, we had a person text one day. She said, hey, I've seen you guys working really hard and I know that you guys are exhausted. Can I please bring you your favorite meal from your favorite restaurant? And then she did. And I was That's like, awesome. It was so unexpected and, yeah. and it was such a loving act. I mean, and no one knows that she did it. Like it was something that she did behind the scenes and it was just a way to show support and encouragement. Um, and so that's like, that's a practical thing, like mm-hmm. sending, sending a gift card or just even just like a little like, hey, I'm here for you text. Um, yeah, yeah. But I'll let you add on to that. I mean, honestly, the answer that, we don't want, especially living in the Western society. Like I said before, we, we want instant gratification. We want whatever I do now, I want to be able to see it soon. And we have to attach um, the relational aspect to it is that this is for a lot of minorities, including myself, it's, this is, this is trauma. This is, it's not that it's never been there. It's always been there by now. Everything's being exposed at once. So it's like, you know, it's like maybe um, you have a you have a uh, barricade between you and a and a like a, a above ground pool, and someone just like tears that pool and it goes down, and it's like oh my gosh, you know, or even an ocean, right? There's a barricade between the ocean and the land, and that barricade's open. So um, I think uh, being able to be um, this is a Christian word, and we've talked about it. It's it's lament. Um, it's another word for empathy. It's another word for mourning. Um, there's no time limit to being with people that are hurting, um, but it's finding ways to intentionally be there. Um, if it means just, Hey, I'm just telling you, I'm here. I love you. I'm checking in. That's all. I, I need nothing from you. Um, no one, you know, when someone passes away, you know, we use this example a lot, but when someone passes away, regardless of what they did, if they're a good person or a bad person, if their family is there, especially you don't ask, Hey, what happened? You know, can you tell me about the details? <laughs> like it sounds ridiculous, but like imagine saying that to people like that look like me and someone that doesn't run anymore. Um, even before, before Ahmad Arbery stopped running, I mean, was running, I wasn't running in neighborhoods because one time I was running in a neighborhood. I mean, um, I'm in a college campus at night and I had some, some guys pull up in a truck and, and scare me off. I mean, so, so imagine all this stuff is happening with Ahmaud Arbery and someone says, Oh yeah, that's, that's false. That's not, doesn't happen. That becomes like, Hey, like, are you actually saying that my experiences aren't valid? So, so really the, the answer to like the practical, what can you do is like, Hey, let's be present with each other. Um, if we have people, friends, just check in on them, you know, like you said, food, 
food is big. Hey, can I bring you some food? You know, I say that's big because like we had not even cooked a meal in the past two weeks because we were so tired. We were just like popping pizzas in, and yeah, so that was that was yeah, but sweet gesture. And I and I apologize for like for spitting scripture. All I'm not trying to Christianize your episode. Oh, never Uh, apologize for that. You know, you know. In Psalms 23, it says, like, even though I walk through the valley, everybody knows that scripture, right? Like, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, for you, for you are with me, my rod and your staff, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You know, in this season of life, a lot of us are going through that shadow of death experience, minorities. And we know that, I know that Jesus is there with me. I know he's comforting. But what I need to know is that my white brothers and sisters are down in the valley with me. And that's what lament mm. is. Uh, we need people in the valley. The valley is not a permanent place, but it's a place where we're able to reflect. And it's a place of purification because I know that the light is at the end of the tunnel in this moment. We need people. And that's, and that's what it is. And, and it's hard for some people to answer because like we've been ingrained in this culture of like, give me the three-step plan to solving it. In relationship, that doesn't happen. Imagine in marriage, imagine if my wife, if I said that to my wife, you know, she'd be like, what are you trying to do? You know, we'd go through counseling, you know. Very often when we are arguing, I say, no, like, don't, I just need you to listen to me, right? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So you guys mentioned a ton of amazing anti-racism resources already, but are there any others that you in particular love and think are really good that you would recommend to anyone listening to add to their list? I'm as an English teacher, of course, I'm going to recommend books, nonfiction books, nonfiction books. I would recommend Austin Channing Brown's book. I'm still here. Um, black dignity in a world made for whiteness. Um, I actually am just starting this book, so I'm recommending it with the caveat that I have not finished it yet. I had recommended the book White Fragility. And, you know, I think in a lot of situations, you take the meat and you throw out the bones. Um, and so there are, you know, some, some resources that I recommend will make people uncomfortable. And I think that's good. It's important to, to listen to people that more than ever now, like if you're, if you're more liberal thinking, mm-hmm. like I challenge you to, to read more conservative thinking yeah. authors. If you're more conservative leaning, I challenge you to lean to, to read more liberal thinking. And I think it's important to have this balanced perspective um, because that's the, I think that's reality, but uh, the facade that we live in, it's like um, it's polarizing, right? It's like, Oh, if you're not for this side, then you're a terrible person. It's like, no, we actually live in this balance of the middle. And I think it's, it's okay to be in that balance because it helps us be able to understand where people are coming from. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of the resources that we do share, you know, there are from di- people from different backgrounds and we might not agree with everything, but we agree with the foundation. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the most important part. And I think for, if you're a person of faith, I mean, the be the bridge that Latasha Morrison has a book as well, yeah. um, which is good. And then um, there's this um, man named Dr. John Perkins. Um, he's a, he's a black American and um, his passion has been in racial reconciliation and also community development and, and just neighborhoods and things like that. So he's, he's another good guy. Any of his books are good on race. Um, 
So yeah. If you don't have time to read, but you have time to listen. Oh yeah, that's true. Podcasts. Podcasts. Culture Talk Collective. Oh <laughs> gosh. <laughs> We're just trying to figure things out. Yeah. The in addition to the Culture Talk Collective, I would recommend My American Melting Pot is a really good one. Mm-hmm. And then Sincerely Letty mm-hmm. is a good one to do that. And then um Truth's Table. Oh, that's good. It's really good. It's really, really good. Um, I'm listening. Now, again, I've, I've listened to a couple episodes. I've not listened to all of them. And this is going to make you uncomfortable if you are uncomfortable with foul language. Um, and there's not a ton of foul language, but there's a podcast that I started listening to talking about, and it's a limited series, but it's talking about um, police brutality and just kind of like the structure of the police system in America and it's called Behind the Police, and it's with a man named, I think his name is Robert Evans, and then the rap artist, Propaganda, Jason Petty, he's he's featured on this, and it's, you know, it's really interesting, because t- to talk about, you know, a lot of people are saying, um, have a lot of opinions about police policing right now, and so I just wanted to know more about the police system and the police structure. Um, and so that's a podcast I found, and <clears throat> it's probably a little bit more left-leaning, but I, I would be happy to find something that's, you know, in the center as well. The Red Couch by Propaganda, Propaganda and, his wife. and his wife, Dr. Alma, that's a really good one as well. Amazing. So, lots of podcast recommendations. Yeah. And then if you just want to scroll on Instagram, you've got a lot of good, inst- am I overwhelming with resources? Yes. We have, we, Erica, we have a list that we wrote. So we would love to share with you the link. Please do. That's awesome. Yeah. Christina's like going through all of it. (laughs) She's an excited ally. She is. More people should be like her. She's a role model. Oh yeah, she is (laughs) for sure. Well, you guys, I can't thank you enough for coming on Thrive. You are such a wealth of wisdom and inspiration and just such a blessing. You guys are such a blessing as friends to Jamie and I, and you're just, I'm sure you're just such a blessing to everybody who has tuned in today. So hopefully they will all hop on over to the Culture Talk Collective, found wherever you are listening to this podcast right now, um, and tune into the conversation that you guys continue over there too, because you are always just so open, so real, so brave, and just so full of faith and truth through it all, which I think the world needs more of anyway. So I want to close out by asking you a question that I ask all guests who come on the Thrive podcast, and that is, what does Thrive mean to you, and how do you strive to thrive in your own everyday life? Well, yeah, I think in this season of my life, arriving is actually resting. Oh, that's good. That's hard for me because I'm I'm a I'm go go go, but I am eight months pregnant and I cannot go go go. <laughs> very I'm very tired. Like my energy is totally depleted, and so for me right now, thriving is is being okay with resting and and like actually like being intentional. Like what does true rest look like? It's you know reading or painting or folding baby clothes or things like i mean that's still work taking naps oh yeah i nap all the time now yeah yeah for me uh thriving um one of the things i'm passionate about is helping people see that they have a gift and they have something to offer in this world 
Um, so thriving looks like um, empowering others to see that they are a gift to this world. Mm-hmm. Um, so tree success doesn't look like making lots of money. It doesn't look like having tons of followers. True success looks like someone saw that they have something to give to the world today. And I help that. So I try my best to center myself with that truth because we all know that we do get swayed, right? With uh, false realities or the false, um, the false treasures of this world. But the true treasure is really helping people. You know, imagine saying I helped this person see that they have something to offer. So that's what thriving is to me. Wow, your answer was so much better than mine. <laughs> Sorry. I'm an Enneagram three. So yeah, like me too. Me too. <laughs> you three exhaust me. So like time. I already have my mission. Go take a nap, Nina. <laughs> Go take a nap. <laughs> I love it. Oh my gosh. So where can people find you online? You can find our podcast page at the Culture Talk Collective. Um, that's on Instagram and Facebook. Mm-hmm. And our website too is theculturetalkcollective.com. Yes. And if people, I don't know who still emails, but if you guys want to email us, the, the Culture Talk uh, podcast at gmail.com. But we love Instagram. We love Facebook. So you find us on there engaging a lot. And uh, we're, we're really nice people. So hopefully some of your listeners become family to us. And uh, we look forward to um, to relating and talking some more. Well, you're two of the best people I know. So I can second that. <laughs> Wait, before you go, if you like what you just listened to, drop us five stars on iTunes. Make sure you're subscribed to never miss an episode of Thrive. And if you're on Instagram, snap a screenshot and share to your story with what episode you're tuning into and tag me at Erica Legenza with what part resonated with you the most. That way I can see what's helping you and your friends can pick up a helpful tidbit too. Thanks for tuning in. It's your time to thrive.